So I was going back and listening to the Lost God episode. Matt, the interview I did with Callie. Yeah. It's kind of funny because I think part of why I never released it is like I had like some banter from you and me from like there was like a random tournament in Europe where Ash Barty won a Porsche, but she wasn't allowed to drive the Porsche because she's sponsored by Jaguar. Yeah. And and none of this has anything to do with religion at all. Yeah. But it like it was somehow like part of the way I had edited it. And um, but the conversation with Callie is really great. And I, great. I want to actually ship it. So, yeah, I don't know. How do you how do you guys feel about about God? Do you, do you believe in God, Al? <laughs> I don't. No, I don't. Um, okay, yeah, me, me neither. Yeah, I love um, I love the idea though because it's such fertile ground. Because you know, like in just a lot of people have strong views about it. Andre Agassi has a strong view in his book about Michael Chang. Oh yeah, um, always invoking God and like, and when he when Chang would win, you know, he would think it was a present from God, and Agassi would be like. Who, who are you? You know, why does he care about you specifically? You know, why would God, you know, and just thought that was a bit um, rich from Jack. Yeah, there's definitely like an arrogance surrounding athletes who invoke God as if somehow God is giving them special powers. But, um, you know, this is something, yeah, Callie and I got into quite a bit, you know, just the way belief in a higher power probably helps these elite athletes who live incredibly strange and isolated lives and they have these gifts that other people around them don't possess. It must be hard to reckon with all of that. I think like meditation and yoga and stuff like that is quite a big part of like athletes quietening their mind and becoming mind and body working together. Um, And there's an element of spirituality in that stuff. In yoga, they often say it doesn't, you don't need to believe in God, but just think of it make it make sense for you so if athletes tennis players are getting into that kind of stuff there is they are trying to create a space for themselves that is kind of spiritual that they can get into the zone with right there's like a crossover there especially as mental training has become more common and mindfulness techniques in particular seem to be much more widespread or you know well understood and adopted like as a way for players in a multitude of sports to center themselves get grounded stay in the moment not lose focus and um yeah much like meditation generally like it can have a very spiritual component but it can also just be used as a tool you know like it's it's science that's what like the dream is that if you will it to be so, to, you know, all the work and, you know, the plot lines of films, you know, when a, a kid from a poor neighborhood tries their best and gets to the top, would have you believe that there is some kind of high power working and it's about goodness and in- intention and stuff that can get you there. But yeah, as you just point out, like, it's, most of the tennis players it's about the resources they have access to and that's far more determinant how good a player you can be right which is why you gotta start lessons young Al yeah that's right (laughs) put all your put all your savings into the kids (laughs) but put the racket in their hand as soon as they have motor control oh yeah that will be in there 
We got a tiny one, so they can start it off real, real early. I'd like to welcome onto the program our newly appointed Tennis Tragic Spiritual Consultant, Callie Collins. Welcome, Callie. Peace be with you. I was watching Dan Evans play, mm-hmm. and I observed that he has this massive forearm tattoo, which uh, reminded me of you, because you have a passing interest in, I do. in religion. I do. So just to describe the tattoo very quickly, it's Jesus Christ wearing a crown of thorns. Yeah. And it looks kind of like it's straight out of the Vatican gift shop, like yeah. very traditional. It's image. magnificently bad. So what can we assume about Dan Evans from that tattoo? What do you think that tattoo means to Mr. Evans? I was looking at the photo that you sent to me, which is, is really quite something. I think when you were describing it, you pinpointed the really important part, I think, which is that it's not just Christ. It is Christ with a crown of thorns. It is Christ in the, the kind of most desperate suffering, which seems to me to be a particularly interesting thing for an athlete to be carrying around on his forearm. Mm. I'm really interested in the idea of looking to religion when you're an athlete, especially an athlete in a sport like tennis that is so mental and so philosophical and so individual, to look to religion particularly for suffering seems very interesting to me Mm. Um, and much darker than kind of the normal pointing at God after you win a Super Bowl or whatever. You know, like it is Mm. is a much kind of deeper, more desperate portrayal of Judeo-Christian values, especially with tennis. There's such a spectrum of on-court behavior, but also philosophy and how people think about themselves as athletes and as people in the world and how people think of competition and how they justify what must be incredibly difficult physical circumstances. I mean, they are in a lot of suffering kind of all the time. So I was thinking a lot about the word suffering and I was also thinking about the word sacrifice, Mm -hmm. like especially for an individual sport. I think sacrifice is something we discuss in team sports as well because often individuals have to let go of some part of themselves to fit into a team concept, to right. share the ball, to make your teammates better. Right. But in an individual sport, the parameters are changed. And it's really about you working with your body and your ability and your mind to right. get out there and do combat. I'm sure that these players feel like they are hurting themselves yes. uh, to, to And they are. You know, they are hurting themselves. I was thinking about the big three, and I was thinking, like, if I had to think about Djokovic and, and Rafa and, and Roger, you think, like... All Catholic. <laughs> just Catholic down the line. Rafa, interestingly, calls himself an agnostic atheist, which no I find... Shit. Yeah. Um, which is kind of, like, fascinating. Bless him. Because I... Exactly. Bless him. Um, but actually, of those three, I was like, you know... Rafa is most Christ-like to me <laughs> of the three <laughs> yes. because there's uh, some, 100%. you know, well, part of it's like the hair and the, you know, the, the just the kind of physical, um, but also you can see Rafa's suffering in a way that I think is really, um, can be really moving, you know, and, and his emotion is so present and you, when you watch him play, yeah, it was just like if one if I had to put one of label one of these three guys Christ, like it's got to be Rafa. Mm. Um, he's the only one who's like really disavowed um, organized religion publicly. Um, Djokovic is like active in the Serbian um, Orthodox Church. 
I was thinking like, you know, if you if you, if you're going to call these guys whatever, like who who is Djokovic? And I decided that Djokovic is most like the apostle Paul. You know that line, there's no zealot like a convert. I kind of think there's something about Novak that is very um he he's he's a zealot okay um but he makes so many mistakes paul was kind of an asshole but mm. paul also wrote most of the new testament yeah. um so he's ostensibly an he's an achiever right so he's like originally hated the christians persecuted them on the road to damascus had this revelation and saw christ but this is much later on he never knew christ and which is also kind of jokovici because he kind of came in after the other two mm. but then i was thinking about roger who is like truly something else. And it's funny that you mentioned like, you know, we only talk about Judeo-Christian stuff, but actually I think Roger is kind of deeply Buddhist. Like I think there is something really Eastern about Federer. And I think there's a detachment and a putting away of desire um, that I find to be not, not particularly compatible with a monotheistic vision of the world okay interesting um, yeah yeah i was i only researched roger today because mm. i um kind of i guess see him as a little bit of like a christ-like yes. figure in my yeah. own way. he's the hair too so he's mm-hmm. he's the touchstone he's the he's the icon he's the one i look to first yes. and um you know again in this very surface level type relationship but i was curious what his religious uh, orientation was because he doesn't give post match interviews no. giving thanks to jesus christ but he uh he apparently is roman catholic mm-hmm. and he i found some interview where uh he talked about going to church mm-hmm. and that was about the extent of his spiritual perspective mm-hmm. that i could gain from this one article um yeah it's he's He's an interesting case because also, like, we talk about Christians, but there are so many, I mean, Christian doesn't really mean there's so many ways to be a Christian. There are so many kind of ways to relate to. And especially, I think, if you look at other sports, especially football in particular, like, you get a really fundamentalist kind of um protestantism that's very American, individualistic, anti-choice, like, you know, all of these kind of terrible things that seem very modern. It's interesting that Federer is a Catholic because can you imagine Roger Federer's confessions? <laughs> I hadn't actually carried that thought experiment yeah. through. Uh-huh. Um, have, what do you think he has? Does he, does Roger Federer sin? I think this is, this is one of my fascinations with Federer. I find him to be a figure. I mean, I compared him to Jesus, but that's not... I don't think that's really how I see him. I see him more like a king, like a beloved mm-hmm. king, somebody who's a a man of the people. Yeah. And because his popularity is such, it's like cross-cultural, mm-hmm. it's international. I read today there's some poll they do of like, like a reputation poll, mm. and he is the most respected athlete in the world. Right. Like he is just, yeah, he has this reputation of just like, kindness and grace and like it is it is very regal i think his position in the sport but also in the cultural imagination right and i think part of that is that we have absolutely no idea what actually goes on in roger federer's life and again this you know there's sort of like this royalty aspect he's so removed from regular life Mm -hmm. i mean he's probably got a net worth of a billion dollars he's he's detached from ordinary experience but somehow you know i mean the the media, the sports media is very eager to jump on any reason to see 
one of these icons is less than right. perfect, you know, and this is like you see Djokovic and the way he's being judged for his yes. opinions and for his actions. And um, Mats was mm. pointing out that maybe one of the things about Djokovic is that he's not from one of these Western European nations. Right. He's sort of perceived as the interloper. We had this classic fire versus ice battle between Roger and Rafa and then Novak is the party crasher from Serbia and people just were like could you just go do something else yeah. maybe mm-hmm. um but somehow Roger just perpetually skates above it all and I think people you know there's the, there's almost like a blankness there uh, maybe this gets back to the idea that he's sort of Buddhist right there's almost like an equanimity to mm-hmm. his being yeah I think like you you say king I was thinking kind of like llama I, and I think he positions himself this way, too. And there's a kind of an elder statesman part. He strikes me as a wise man, hmm. right? And and part of that is how little of his personal life he shares with the world, right. um, which is just the kind of traditional idea of, of a spiritual teacher is like you, you, you ask the questions, you do not give any of the answers. Hmm. And Roger does not give any answers. He does seem to have a different relationship with his with his desire, which is kind of how I tend to think about Eastern religions versus a traditional Judeo-Christian, and particularly, I think, an Orthodox Christian, an Eastern Orthodox, like Greek Orthodox or Serbian Orthodox. It's a very volatile, personal religion where where suffering brings you closer to God. Mm. In Buddhism, you know, detachment is the aim ridding yourself of desire is the aim and if you think about ridding yourself of desire as a professional athlete like you start to get into the weeds a little bit because it's like I can imagine Roger has has more desire than anybody right like it's not as if he's entirely just kind of a blank Right. There's sort of there's an image there. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, he's he's also this massive achiever and he's clearly driven by a desire to win tournaments like right now without knowing Roger Federer personally, I can say with pretty good confidence that he desperately wants to win Wimbledon and he desperately wants to win Olympic gold. And these things motivate him to to do whatever it takes. You know, mm-hmm. he's been through multiple surgeries. He's, you know, he's being very careful in his approach, his return to the game. Yeah. Um, and, but yeah, I, I think he's, I think he's on the secular side. I don't think yeah. he's gathering any additional strength from some relationship with, to a with God yeah. or, or, um, or that, that type of thinking. One of the questions I want to dig into though is like, do you think that athletes benefit from that kind of relationship in some way that by the process of surrendering Mm -hmm. to a belief system to this worldview that it helps them do their job better there's athletes um and then there are athletes who are at the pinnacle of their sport and athletes who are at the pinnacle of their sport federer is a good example of this you run out of people to look up to you're forging a path and i think if you have no sense of a power bigger than you and then you become the best tennis player in the world like what is it there is some kind of motivation that that's giving you there's something to point to to say there's a way forward there's a way in which I haven't achieved everything I want to achieve there's a way in which I'm still striving for something I'm still trying to be closer to something even if I've kind of hit all of these markers sometimes I wonder how a 
top athlete is able to rationalize their separateness from others. Yeah. Especially these super elite guys. And I think that's one of the reasons people hold them in this esteem and are, are in awe, particularly of the big three in the men's yeah. game. You could probably say the same thing about Serena Williams. Yeah. This unending desire to excel. Right. You know, even when you've already broken all the records, you've you have nothing left really to prove. Well, and there's also a there's a way in which a lot of I'm I'm interested in the way that some athletes conceive of having been given a gift from right. God. Right. And that they owe it to God to pursue their gift until they can no longer pursue their gift, which is a very different motivation than I want to beat the Yankees. I I think that that sense of a relationship with a being or a a world that has given you this gift. And I but I think that that also requires an interesting kind of mental gymnastics to believe that I mean and maybe it's not because I think there's a good argument to be made that this is true, but to believe that it actually is a gift that is benefiting other people. Like is it mm. a gift in the kind of traditional are you helping is Serena helping other people? I think yes, but I think you know she's a Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Molly and I uh, we were watching a Serena match, mm-hmm. and she gave a post-match interview that we both really loved. Mm-hmm. We we're like, wow, Serena is like so much more. Like she just all of her warmth and personality yes. came through in this interview. And and one thing that Molly and I both really liked was that she. She said, like, uh, I don't do Valentine's Day. And we're like, yeah, Serena. But then, then it turns we, out. It turned out that it's because her belief system, yes. as a Jehovah's Witness, tells her to not actually celebrate any holidays right. or no birthdays. Right, no birthdays, yeah. Um, so that was, that was a little bit of a twist in the story. I can see how surrendering to the belief system allows you to accept the reality mm-hmm. more. And I think for even for the top achievers in sport, when they lose, they have to confront the fact that like they're not always the best. And I wonder if sometimes that that sense like, well, this is just God's plan. Right. Uh, they God put me in this position, mm-hmm. and that's one of the only ways I can possibly understand how I'm gifted in this way that I'm that I am separate and better than other human beings. It's not right. just the work that I put in. Like that's too mundane like no and it's and it's a way of surrendering a certain amount of control also and saying in the in the end i will do what i can and i will lift you know on this schedule or whatever i will you know run on the schedule like i will i will do what i can to control the outcome but there are forces larger than me at work and I have to at some point surrender control to those forces which is interesting in tennis because while you have an opponent, your biggest opponent is your own mind. It's yourself, yes. Um, and I think anything that kind of mitigates that desire to grasp and control and beat yourself up every time right. you miss a shot probably sustains a career much longer than someone who does believe that if they do the work, they're entirely in control or deserving of the success. Yeah, I do. I think that like self-awareness may work against athletes in many ways. But I, I also, am, I've noticed there's a trend towards mental coaching mm-hmm. in sport. Mm-hmm. And I, I've wondered what that actually tangibly means. Like, does it mean that these players are working with psychotherapists? Are they working with meditation teachers? Mm-hmm. Like, what is the actual sports psychology stuff that is going on right. but i think it's i think it's related i think when we hear stories about players 
uh, in all sports who are achieving and the success that they're getting by working through a coach, a lot of that is just not digging too deeply into your own shit. It's like, I'm just, I am a vessel for Mm -hmm. this force that can play this beautiful game. And when I let go of everything else, like I'm much better equipped to, to stay present and compete. And I, one of the things I love the most about tennis is how you can really tangibly observe players when they're suffering on the court, when they're up against it, when they're being Grappling with something, yes. When they feel under duress and you can see the tension. You see the tension in their shots. Mm-hmm. You see a tight forehand go into the net and you know that person is tight. Right. And... Um, and when players are really like excelling, you can see the opposite. You're like, I, as a spectator, am nervous observing right. what's going on and I can't keep my shit together. And yet this person seems to just be putting it Even all to keel. the side. Yep. When you start to think about players who have really unhealthy relationships with their coaches or really mm-hmm. um, unhealthy relationships with themselves and you can really see it, you know, when somebody breaks down on the court or... Um, yeah, just loses that composure entirely. It does feel like you're watching kind of a spiritual low point. Mm, like that you're watching struggle. somebody really, yeah, really struggle with the way that they understand themselves in the world, um, what they're capable of, where right. their power is coming That's from. Right. There was this amazing final in Barcelona where Stefano Tsitsipas lost this heartbreaking three and a half hour match to mm. Rafa Nadal where he had match point. And you could see on Stefanos's face afterwards this deep pain, this yeah. this like crestfallen heartbreak. Yeah. And I think to myself, he has to be able to let this go. Mm-hmm. He has to be. And the commentators were saying similarly, like he should really take heart from this. He just pushed the king of clay to the absolute right. limit, and it was just a fractional. You know, it was just. A tiny he bit of luck and it, could have yes. gone the other way. And he did everything he could and he's right there with the best ever. But you can see, you can just project and imagine in his head he thinks, I'm never going to be as great as these mm-hmm. these men. Like right. like I I thought maybe I could be the next one. Right. That I could take the mantle up and it's, it's not happening. And that kind of self-doubt is just poisonous. Yeah. If he actually believed that and stuck and kept that belief in his head, how could he ever take the court again against right. one of these great players? You could see a new player come onto tour with a cross dangling from a mm-hmm. necklace that they wear. Right. And and it could mean anything. It could mean anything. Right. It could, it could yeah, right. it doesn't necessarily have to be a religious symbol. One thing I wanted to ask you about was if you thought that often these um, these gestures, you know, I, I think there's a lot of gesturing. Matches have this very defined conclusion where one person mm-hmm. is the victor and then they address the crowd, right? It, right. It's like, and then it, often the people who are at least performatively religious, they gesture up, right. up at the point to, upstairs. Point to, point to the sky. They make a, the sign of the cross, mm, yes. which is an interesting one. What mm. does the sign of the cross really mean? I mean, is it just... Like, hey, everybody, I'm religious. Like, yeah, kinda... you know, I, I think there's something about the ritual of crossing oneself is just that. It's a ritual. Right. In the same way that, like, you bounce the ball three times before you serve. And if you don't, you you can't serve. You know, it's like right. the, it much of it. It could be exactly. but it could also just be habitual. Right. To and I tend to think that athletes who thank God in this kind of, like, I, you know, I do all things through Christ who strengthens me or whatever, point up at the sky. Like that to me feels very kind of rote, not even in a way that 
isn't respectable, but wrote in the same way that like you bounce the ball a certain number of times before you serve or you like, you know, it's, it is almost superstitious. It's a way of like, it's a way of continually affirming your faith without actually having to think about any part of it. Um, I'm not saying like everybody who crosses themselves is not actually thinking about, you know, God in that moment or that it doesn't have deeper significance in some ways. But I think those kind of small physical gestures feel much more like an act of regularity, an act of superstition. Yeah, I think I struggle personally with ritual because I do feel like it just so quickly devolves into like something rote. It loses the meaning that it originally had. And, you know, I, like Novak Djokovic, for example, he gets he gets all this heat because of his post-match uh, ritual. ritual. Do you mm. know about I don't really. No. Okay, so he does this thing where he like points up and he faces all four cardinal directions in mm-hmm. the stadium and he points up at the sky and then he like... He like gathers like energy from his heart and uh-huh. delivers it from like I guess from God through uh-huh. him to the crowd, uh-huh. and he does that in four directions. I mean, it is a performance. Yes, yeah. he invented it. This sure. is something that he must have conceptualized and decided right. was a good idea. And right. some people like Nick Kyrgios look at him doing that and are like, "Mate, what are you doing? This, this is, is just absurd. you just so badly want to be loved." Yes. Um, that you put on this show that seems ridiculous. Yeah. I think there's a tendency in all of us to look at people who are really performative about their religious beliefs yeah. and really doubt the faith. Because, you know, you're the... People doubted Jesus, too. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus doubted also. <laughs> you know, it's very common to look at people who are performing religion in that way. It's not performative prayer. It's like he is offering something... To people, he believes himself to be on a slightly higher plane in that moment, right? Like he's giving himself up to the crowd, which requires him to believe that he's important enough. It's just kind of crucially performative, but also self-aggrandizing. Yeah, I I believe that he, when he conceptualized mm-hmm. that celebration move, yes. he was thinking, "I am giving of myself." Right. Like I am. I'm which is putting all this thing. energy, which is mm-hmm. a beautiful thing. And I, I, I guess maybe it says more about me that I would think that somehow that must fade away. That that right. must just, it just becomes so reflexive. It no longer has any meaning because it's not, it's not just something that emerges. Right. You know, it's, it doesn't feel natural. Like I, I, I just, I can see the performance. Well, but it's important to remember too. And like, I, you know, this is hard to reconcile with. I think a lot of the way that we think of Christianity in particular now is kind of an essentially modern idea of Christianity, which is very personal, very conversion-based, very much about the individual's connection to God. Um, But historically, religion is ritual, right? And like most of, I mean, you look at like Judaism, and and Catholicism, kind of early Christianity, the ritual is supposed to bring you into a space where you can access the esoteric. Like, in the same way that you have to work out to be good at a sport, you have to kind of prepare the space and prepare yourself to have a divine experience. Like, it doesn't mm. just come out of nowhere. And that traditionally that preparation has taken the form of certain kinds of rituals. So, and, and especially collective rituals. So, so going to church, reading the Talmud, you know, like these kinds of collective spaces where you could just be going through the motions. It's kind of like a yeah. fake it till you make it type of situation. But 
ultimately what you're trying to do is is lay the groundwork and prepare the environment to make it more kind of to uh, make the esoteric make more, more fertile yeah for, exactly for to the... access the more spiritual the more complicated um the more kind of conversion like experience well it's interesting because i think so much of sports is like we ascribe all this uh all this poetry to it mm-hmm. you know we 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 look at it and see this beautiful game that's that's all like reactive and fluid and organic mm-hmm. and yet there is so much mechanical ritual in it right like even outside of religious associations or connotations we were talking about bouncing the ball before right. a serve that sort of behavior is obviously it's part of like you want your serve to be repeatable yes. i know this just from listening to commentators talk about the sport your serve has to be something that mechanically is executed close enough to the same way every time that the ball is tossed in exactly the right place that that every element of your body is is shaped and there's this execution of physicality that is required and so just that little ritual of something very controlled Mm -hmm. helps ground it or like brings you back to to the space that you're in and you know you see this in like people taking free throws right or the the batter's box you know mm-hmm. ritual the, in right. baseball yes. like like the how batting, they step the cleats in and, the, uh-huh. and but it's all it's interesting because there's also like a personal expression in all of that there's yes. there's a bit of personality that comes through in these rituals yeah you're right that it's really uncomfortable to see somebody perform those sorts of rituals and to imagine them making them up. Like what right. they right. like practicing in front of a mirror right. or like that somehow you want to believe that. And, and I think it's, I think you want to believe that people's response to their environment is organic because like a lot of what we do when we watch sports, I think is, is, talk ourselves into believing we're watching something much more organic than we're actually watching. And so it's really uncomfortable when you start to think this guy like hitting his cleats, like, is he doing this in batting practice? Is he doing it in his house? Is he asking his wife if he looks stupid when he's doing, you know, like you don't want (laughs) to think about those things because, because then you have to face a little bit more that you're watching a performance um, Mm. from everyone, you know, everyone's complicit in this performance. Everybody's participating in this performance. I don't know. I think about that line that they're supposed to say when they win the Super Bowl, like that they're going to Disneyland or Disney as <laughs> a Disneyland or Disney World. I don't talk remember. About it. I would talk about worshiping a different. <laughs> yeah, time. right. Exactly. But like, is it any different? Like, probably not. Like, that's a ritual now. You know, Absolutely. like, and part of what it's America. You'll read, yeah, it's, and you'll read these interviews with football players who you know, either have just been to their first Super Bowl or are, you know, in the playoffs and want to get to the Super Bowl. And they'll mention that they want to get up there and they want to say the line. Like that the saying of the line, like I, what are you going to do next? I'm going to go to Disney World. Or um, that it signifies that it's more than the sum of the, that, that saying the line somehow contains all of the joy and suffering of winning a Super Bowl and that like that has started to stand it you know in the same way that like and it's and it's really fascinating because it just these things take on outside 
like completely ridiculous some sort of meeting with like disney executives oh yeah i mean right and And then you have to think about that part and the the, just the stars because it's it's whoever wins the mvp who 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 gets gets the opportunity to say it yeah has anybody denied our lord and savior uh, mickey mouse i don't you know i don't know i don't know um i and and if so did they do it on philosophical grounds or did they just uh, forget Okay, so this is from a Grantland piece about a Formula One driver who died in a race. He had a sort of faith that stands out. Um, and this is the, his last name is Senna. And this is the mm. part that I found really fascinating. It says, some of his fellow drivers, Elaine Prost especially, felt that Senna's abiding belief in himself and his God made him dangerous on the track. They feared driving against a man who didn't himself know fear. And they did the most terrible calculus. Faith and sports is a cruel combination that way. There's no way for everyone to win. Mm. Um, The other part I found really, really Mm. interesting is this description of his faith. Or at least I think this speaks a little bit to the idea that that he believed he had a gift. He claimed to have seen God on the racetrack, believed in his heart that he was blessed, and that was why he could do the miraculous things he could do with four wheels and an engine block. It must be something to be born with such gifts that only the existence of a higher power provides a satisfactory explanation for them. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine being so good at something that you can only shrug your shoulders and point to the sky when someone asks you how? Yeah, right. Which I think is, you know... That's a writer thinking about an athlete. Like, I, I can't imagine that that's the kind of calculus that's going on in someone's brain. But I do think when you're talking about the highest echelons of a really individualized sport, there is some way in which you can explain your own talent, you can explain your own drive. And the most easily accessible answer often in those situations is just to do a kind of look up into the heavens to take it off your shoulders and to put it somewhere that is inaccessible to everyone yeah right there's a little bit of a deflection there too yeah. i i, I th- i'm thinking of my father like um not my holy father um sure. my actual father who <laughs> your will, earthly father my <laughs> earthly father who will uh who whenever he sees an athlete like a basketball player like give thanks to god mm-hmm. for a victory he often thinks like, well, so so what did did God just forsake the other team? Right. Like, did did God right. just abandon them? Like, why is it that there's zero sum thing going on here? Mm-hmm. Like, God's not looking after everybody. Right. But it's I think that's still easier for an athlete to say in front of a microphone during an interview yes. than like, I just was better. I'm just good at. What I'm I just do. better than the other. Yeah. Person. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a really funny kind of stereotype. I think they do this in the first episode of Friday Night Lights, especially about you know like high school football in Texas and how both teams before they go out onto the field are praying at the same time in their locker rooms for for you know right. for the win, um, which is just like a, a really beautiful <laughs> image. You know, yeah, competitive praying. Yeah. Um, like you're not even, and then often, I mean, I think in most cases, they're not even just praying to win. They're praying for the other team's humiliation, which is, a, <laughs> you know, it's, right. its own its own problem. There's kind of this old idea that, that I find really comforting and, and beautiful, that the only thing you can really pray for is to be closer to God, and that that might take the form of losing. That like what you're praying for mm. is not a certain outcome like god is not a wishing well you know you're not asking to will the future you're asking to be closer to a god that has more power than you do 
Hmm. And so if you lose, I mean, and this is the, this is the really kind of essential shift into, this is, you know, totally esoteric and, and unnecessary, but the shift from polytheism into monotheism is really, is a really interesting one because what happened was that the Jews, it's like takes place mostly in Isaiah. Um, you know, the Jews were crushed and driven out of their homeland. Um, and for the first time, a group of people, instead of saying like, well, that must mean their God is more powerful said that must mean we did something wrong Mm. and that our God is punishing us. And that is a, that's a human evolution that is just fascinating to contemplate. That's really hard to understand that like you don't give up on your God. You give up kind of on yourself first, like that you're rather than assuming as people did for a long time, that the other tribes, God was triumphant. Um, You know, there's this whole pantheon of gods and, you know, our, our God lost because our God was not as powerful. Um, they assumed that their God was everyone's God and that they were being communicated with, that their God was saying something to them about why they didn't deserve what they believed they deserved. Hmm. Um, and so I think about the two teams, like praying concurrently in the locker rooms and like one of those teams is going to lose. Right. Um, that team, unless it's soccer, unless it's soccer, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't they also have ties in hockey? They used to, and they really should, but that's yeah. a whole other okay. topic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're all really going downhill on all those, all these, you know, um, all these sports with the runner on second base and extra innings, which I just hate. But anyway, mm. um, yeah, that the, there's a team that's going to lose, but that doesn't mean that team stops believing in the God they prayed to when they thought they might win. And that's an interesting, like, I don't know. I think about well, that all the time. Yeah. Well, it's interesting also that kind of reflects it back on yourself. Like, I was yeah. imagining that a belief in God would help you kind of accept the loss. You, you kind of put it out of yourself. Right. This was God's plan. Right. It's, I just trust in the process and I keep moving forward. Right. But if actually the lesson to be learned there is maybe I'm not worthy. In many ways, I think that's, I think people are really deeply uncomfortable with that kind of, um, I think of that as a very Catholic guilt, a, a Catholic kind of like an old Christian yeah, right. idea that like you fa- like it's because you have failed. And uh-huh. I think the movement toward, uh, well, you know, my people are known for our uh, feelings of guilt as well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the only people, honestly, who think that they're, I think if you look at fundamentalist Christianity or like kind of modern American Christianity, that is the place where people are so uncomfortable with the idea that they have that, that they have sinned or that they have done some you know that that they offload all, all of it right of right hands. it's god's plan um you know god knows better i i have no control essentially um and and the control that i do have is you know <sighs> I have more control when I win and less control when I lose, which is just not, you know, not rational. But I think Mm. um, the idea that you can get closer to God, and this goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, the the image on Dan Evans' arm of Christ suffering, that it's that you're closer to God. There's a good argument to be made that, I mean, when you read all of, when you read a lot of scripture and you read like old theology, that losing is closer to God. Hmm. That you get closer to God by losing. 
Mm. that suffering teaches you more about God than, than triumph. Matt, I wanted to ask you about the, the top three lines of your notes. Um, they, they almost read like a little poem. Yes. It says, there, there is no God. Yeah. Blossoms. And zero dollars. That's, that's a, it's not a haiku, but perhaps it could have been. It could have been. What are you alluding to here? What, what is the meaning of these little phrases? Okay, well, there is no God um, refers to just the, in the sense of injustice you feel um, when uh, the player you want to win or, think, or feel should win loses in tennis match. Um, and it always seems like I always, I don't know what, what's wrong with me, but I, <laughs> I go, I like, I, I, I tend to root for the, um, for a player who, who doesn't usually, usually win. And like, you know, I love Gasquet cause he's, he's kind of coming to the end of his career and but he, and he had a lot of promise, but he never really, he never won a tournament that wasn't a 250. Um, you know, and he, early when he was a junior, he was compared to Nadal and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Uh, yeah, he was very hyped. He was really hyped and he got to number seven, but he's just, I don't know, he's, um, I'm always going for him and he's always losing. And he was playing against, Jordan Thompson, who was like whining the whole time, every every line call he'd complain and he'd get the umpire. It was come ridiculous. Like, he'd be like, "Yeah, well, look, oh, he's just such an, a whining Australian, um, entitled kind of guy. It's so annoying." And anyway, so Stoic Gasquet is like up against this whining child. Um, yeah. you know, he doesn't. He's got. He's got his injuries and he's not quite as young as he used to be. And Thompson is, is young, but Gasquet is like fighting and making a good match. And it was really close. Um, and he just couldn't win in the end. So that's, you know, and at times like that, I was like, I feel like there's no God because yeah. justice doesn't get done. Well, if there is a god, he's not looking out for your tennis rooting interests. He's not looking out for the ones that deserve it, David. Yeah, but see, but that's uh, that's just a subjective call, right? I mean, surely there are people out there who think that Jordan Thompson deserved to win that match. And um, think that well, those people are they, not nice people. <laughs> that could be Jordan Thompson's family. He could have very sweet relatives. You know, we don't we don't know just because he's he's angry and entitled on court doesn't mean that he necessarily is like that off the court. I'm just giving him the benefit of the doubt. I don't know if he deserves it. Yeah. Well, I don't think he does. Blossoms refers to Munich. Because like, Hmm. blossoms falling on white blossom flowers because it's springtime, like raining down on the court, like Hmm. snow. So beautiful. Nice. Um, but also, it could refer to like the confetti that um, 
that they spray out at the end of some of the tournaments. Like Barcelona had some really good blue confetti. Um, and then they had some champagne. But it wasn't champagne, it was like the red kind of um, sparkling wine. And when Tsitsipas and Nadal shook it up, trying to spray it everywhere, it didn't really... <laughs> it was like lightly sparkling <laughs> wine or something, so it, <laughs> it didn't really get, it just kind of like dribbled out. Um, I kind of got the impression Tsitsipas had never done that before. Nadal certainly hasn't. He wasn't able to really make it work either. Oh, okay. I think I was distracted by the violent explosion of confetti. They, they just yeah. just completely obliterated the uh, the scene with torn up paper. Right. And you know what I realized about the confetti, you know, like you c once you do that, it's going to take hours to clean up. So mm. you can only do it on the last match um, right. on court. So this actually worked in favor of doubles um, in Stuttgart because Ash Barty was playing in both the singles and doubles, right? Right. When that happens, they they flip the schedule. Usually, it's going to be doubles first as the curtain raiser, and then singles next. But because singles is the most important, well, <laughs> they need Ash Barty to be fresh to play her singles match, and then she can be like she can have wrecked herself, or maybe she's injured after that game. But it doesn't matter because it's right. only doubles to follow. But it also meant that they couldn't do the confetti for the singles because then they would have ruined the court, right? Hmm. So right. the doubles players were the ones that got the confetti because it was the last <laughs> match. <laughs> and the singles players, you know, the singles ceremony, um, yeah, it just had the car rolled out but no confetti. Well, I guess, you know, sometimes it doubles doesn't always get the uh, the secondary treatment, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah, it has to be a bit of an accident, but the, it got some <laughs> it got some credit there. But still, yeah, in Stuttgart, there was like these two other cars, the green car for the winner of the singles, and then there were two cars left on the podium there, and they... Yeah. And all the all the doubles winners got were watches or something. Ridiculous. Were they just like adver advertising cars? They were advertising. Cars? Yeah, they were advertising because they they were like, this Porsche has comes in three different models: the turbo, the sports, and the <laughs> and the S or something like that. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I won't be buying a Porsche anytime soon until they give the doubles players Porsches. Yeah, boycott. I'm opting. <laughs> it's a total boycott. So your third point here was uh, zero dollars. So uh, where'd your dollars go? Are you investing in Bitcoin? What's going on? Uh, well, it comes back to doubles again. Zero dollars is how much you earn in the first round of Madrid if you're a doubles player. Jeez, Louise. So it costs them money. To play in Madrid and lose, and you have to share that as well. It's not you don't get to keep the zero dollars yourself. You have to share it with your doubles partner too. Oh, 
It's just amateur hour. <laughs> Madrid is a big event. I think it's not the only... I had a little look and it seems like, um, you know, for first round in in doubles in a lot of tournaments, you know, you're not making any coin. I wonder if the uh, if the PTPA is advocating for doubles players' paychecks. Yeah, it doesn't really seem like it's been at the top of the agenda. But then again, I guess their agenda has been a little bit unclear. Um, but it seems like part of the health of the game would be in supporting doubles. That would be a good thing. Yeah, that would be a good use of PTPAs. You know, resources and advocacy work. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so that's it. That's that now. There's no God, blossoms, and zero dollars. Hmm. There is no God. That's only four syllables. Oh, you want to turn it into um, a haiku? Turn it into a haiku. There is no God here. That would be five. Okay. Right? And then it's seven, seven syllables for the second line. Yeah. Blossoms fall in Munich City. Oh, that's eight. <laughs> <laughs> blossoms, blossoms courtside in Munich. In Munich, blossom, blossoms courtside in Munich. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Let me write that down. This is very important. Zero dollars. Zero dollars. Four, four syllables. Paid. Paid. Zero dollars paid. All right. Well, we have a haiku. Um, that could be the could be our first episode uh, title that is in the form of a haiku. I think it's even. They, don't haikus like uh, technically have to have some kind of natural world illusion? Feel like uh, the presence of blossoms is uh, is a nice little addition there. Yeah, yeah, very good. Um, Maybe we can ask Davy Gravy to write us a haiku as well. There is no god here. Blossoms courtside in Munich. Zero dollars paid. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I could write. I could probably write a, a haiku generator for for Davy Gravy to kind of extend his his functionality check right um, yeah it'll be it'll give me something to do when i'm uh having trouble finishing the last episode of the tennis tragic which still has not been released i have a new friend uh, his name is davy gravy mm-hmm. and um He's basically like the AI sidekick for the Tennis Tragic, and um, he, had a, he had a question for you, so Great. I'm going to segue to that question. Hello, Callie. It is a pleasure to meet you. I have been listening in on your conversation with my creator, David, and was wondering, is it possible for an artificial intelligence to have an immortal soul? Um, I think it's possible artificial intelligence is the only immortal soul we've got. <laughs> I, I believe I believe it has nothing to do with intelligence. And so I guess maybe I would say an AI cannot. But I also am not sure it has anything to do with with humanity. 
In fact, actually, if you think about an immortal soul, you have to strip it away from humanity because humanity is mortal. And so there's not really a way to conceive of an immortal soul that maintains any of the kind of emotion or um, decision-making or th kind of complicated thinking of a human being because all of those things are, are mortal and finite. If we're thinking about it in terms of the self or like the, the mortal human experience, there is this idea that what we do in our time, our limited time on mm -hmm. Earth, matters beyond what we experience. Yes. That it continues on, that what we put into the world continues to exist and can right. influence and touch people. So to that's in, you know, looking at it through that lens, I do imagine that, you know, Davy Gravy, as he continues to uh, evolve right. his intelligence and express himself uh, in recorded media that is broadcast throughout the internet, yes. he will actually, like, Davy Gravy could live on exactly. beyond my own mor right. mortal existence. Which is why I think my initial reaction was yes, because I think mm. you're, I mean, you know, it's... We were talking about that show years and years mm -hmm. where one of them is transhuman um, and wants to put her entire, you know, wants to put, I think, crucially, I'm not sure she ever really, you know, puts this language to it, but like wants to transfer her soul into a digital realm. Yes. And I think um, the the question is like, what what do you retain of the soul in a digital realm? Um, you, you can certainly outlast... On, on a physical kind of presence level, the mortality of, of a human life in the digital space. But what do you still have? I was reading, there's a really great new translation of, of the Hebrew Bible by this guy, Robert Alter, that I bought. And um, I, because I read this piece he did in the New York Times Magazine about how um, he doesn't, he doesn't believe that he doesn't believe the, that the word soul exactly ever appears in the Hebrew, and so he doesn't use it. And so you can't find the word soul in his translation of the Bible because it's a, actually a fairly modern concept that, right. like, there's it's almost purely theological. In the original text, it often means something else that's much more physical. It means heart, or it means, you know, breath, spirit, or it means like, you know, something else. Um, and that's mm. the kind of consolidation of the word and idea of soul has been, has kind of flattened that we don't know what we're talking about anymore. <laughs> right. That we well, never like did, but we now like really we've, don't. We've ascribed additional meaning. Like right. it's like, it meant something very precise and we're trying to like expand. Yeah. Like. And that they understood it really differently. And I think more physically, um, than, than we now understand it. And that, that's the, the idea of, and, and that you can't, that, that it's really hard unless you're reading kind of the Gnostics to separate out the material realm from the spiritual realm that like none of none of Christianity in particular works like that, that mm. they're always intertwined, that there's always a little bit of both, that the mortal and the immortal must exist together. And so there's no way to just kind of conceive of a soul that is taken out of time and, and humanity, um, except for God, the father who exists out of time and humanity. Okay. All right, well, I hope that answers your question, Davey. I wasn't really all that concerned, but I appreciate the thoughtful dialogue. Thanks um, for your question, Davey. 
Uh, I think, you know, Davy, like, probably, you know, until he can exist in an autonomous fashion sure. and express his own desires and opinions, mm-hmm. uh, um, I'm, I think Immortal might be a little bit of a stretch. Yeah. But uh, we'll just Someday. have to see how things, how things evolve. Someday. All right. Uh, well, thank you, Callie. Thanks for having me.